This is the Ethics Lab Podcast, exploring the path from better knowledge to practical results in healthcare ethics. The way that we've conceived of sort of modern shared decision making is that there are two people and the decision can't really be made without the input of those two people. And one of them is the clinician. The other is the patient or the patient's decision maker who knows a lot about those particular values and preferences and goals and things that are important to that person about life. But they can't make a decision in a vacuum. That clinician has to provide input and figuring out how we can provide input in the most supportive way is one of the reasons why sort of in the conversational way nudges are really important because we do that we do it anyway as a clinician it's it's truly impossible to have sort of a, a completely neutral choice environment what type of influence should physicians nurses and patients have on tough choice healthcare decisions clinicians want to offer their expertise and their competence but should they be neutral and simply support patient decisions? What type of influence would be helpful and what type would be inappropriate, coercive, or biased? In this episode, our guests explore these questions in a behavioral economics tool called nudging. Nudges are subtle changes to the design, framing of information, and decision options that can influence behaviors. These subtle changes stemming from decision psychology enable clinicians to inform patients of their options while at the same time being very intentional about their impact on patient decisions. Our guests in this episode are Dr. Joanna Hart, Assistant Professor of Medicine and Medical Ethics and Health Policy at the University of Pennsylvania and core faculty of the Palliative and Advanced Illness Research Center at the university. Dr. Jenny Blumenthal-Barbie, a Professor of Medical Ethics at Baylor College of Medicine and Dr. Elisa Olive, pediatric intensivist currently working in Kansas City, Missouri. My name is Kevin Murphy, and this is Ethics Lab. Jenny, when we speak about the ethical permissibility of nudging in healthcare ethics, how would we define nudging? I think of nudging as sort of um, using tools of behavioral economics and insights from decision psychology to sort of subtly shape the way that people make their choices. And um, we can use those insights, uh, you know, about framing effects, about defaults, et cetera, to kind of frame choices to people and present choices to people that uh, give us, a, get, make it predictable kind of more what, what they would be more likely to choose. And I think this usually in contrast to um, something that, that, ethicists might call rational persuasion, where you offer people very, you attempt to offer people very neutral arguments and reasons about why they ought to make one choice instead of another choice, and then kind of just leave it up to them to make a decision about what they, what they want to choose. Elisa, anything you would add? And I, I think in terms of the ethical permissibility of nudging, that these techniques, these ways of communicating with people are something that we, everybody does all the time. And I, I think Joanna and I, as ICU clinicians, are doing all the time, but people aren't necessarily aware of. So becoming more aware of it, maybe using it as a tool, and then trying to figure out, is this ethical? Is it not? Where does this lie on the scale of coercion versus paternalism? Um, those types of things. 
Would you simply have a story that demonstrates nudging in your clinical experience? So a lot of my work is related to really complex decision-making. And when I'm both an outpatient pulmonologist and an inpatient critical care doctor, and in both of those settings, we are constantly looking to patients and family members to make decisions in very high-stakes environments. These are, you know, life-and-death decisions. And many times we find that we get frustrated or we are surprised by the decisions that people make that don't seem to be particularly aligned with uh, rationality, that people struggle to make decisions that really represent what they've told us to be the patient's values, goals, ideals, but then make a different decision about a medical intervention or an approach to care. And so the more I learned about that and the more I learned about sort of why people struggle to make those decisions, the more I learned about behavioral economics and decision science and recognizing that decision psychology, you know, people deviate from that rational model of decision making. When I was a fellow, did a um, research project where I was focused on expectations. And um, there was a patient who was at high risk of lung cancer and therefore was eligible to participate in these interviews with us where we walked through what their decision-making might look like if they had a spot on their lungs that was concerning for lung cancer found on a CAT scan. And on a scan of their lungs, if they found that spot, they might have to undergo a biopsy, which is an invasive biopsy where we go down the airway with a bronchoscope, a scope with a camera on the end of it and go down into the lungs while the person is under anesthesia and take biopsies of the lungs that have a lot of associated risk. And we explained all of this in the course of the interview to try to get a sense of sort of people's expectations when faced with something like that. And this particular patient who was participating told us, oh, you know, after we explained all of this, that sounds very much like a skin biopsy I had for skin cancer last year. A biopsy is a biopsy, so, you know, that went well, and so I think this would probably go well, too. And for me, that was really a stunning example, and there were others akin to this, of saying, for me, as a clinician, the risks of the biopsy involving a scope down the lungs with anesthesia are completely different than a skin biopsy that can be done in a couple of minutes in an outpatient setting. And so to recognize that we're on a completely different sort of wavelength as we're helping people make decisions about risks and benefits, um, for me, that was a big wake-up call as a clinician to really get a sense of sort of how people were digesting this information um, and how people were sort of forming expectations and sort of drawn to things or away from things based on their own personal experiences that may be entirely unrelated to what I was presenting them with at that moment. Jenny, how about you? This is reminding me of a case that I encountered that really motivated my dissertation where it was another aha moment around the use of nudging in, in patient care which was a man who came into the hospital after a motor vehicle accident, and he was paralyzed from the neck down. And um, he was actually ambivalent about whether he wanted to remain on life-sustaining treatment or not. And this ambivalence lasted for a really long time. He would so sort of go back and forth in his decision-making about whether he 
wanted the ventilator to be withdrawn or not. And the way the case was resolved, because the team was so frustrated with his lack of ability to make a decision, is they essentially used a default nudge. They, you know, gathered all the family in his room, in his hospital room, and all of his clinicians, and they set the default that they were going to withdraw care and uh, begin hospice. And I remember that it was such a strong nudge, and he he basically assented. He sort of tearfully, uh, you know, he sort of tearfully assented to that, and that was what was done. And I remember sort of thinking, you know, was was his autonomy really respected? Was that permissible? Was that permissible? I also did not know the term nudge at the time, and I didn't know what a default was. Um, but when I became familiar with behavioral economics and the idea of nudging, I saw that as as an example of of kind of how this plays out in clinical care. There seems to be a component of coping to the decision making that's occurring for both clinicians and patients. Is nudging connected with coping? Because people are trying to digest so much with respect to what their illness might have for the impact on their life. I think there is a component of coping tied up with decision psychology, especially in the healthcare setting, because many of the many of the higher stakes nudges, and I will say that nudges can be used in much lower stakes situations as well, such as towards clinicians to order certain tests for their patients. But for many of the higher stakes decisions, the sort of life or death nudging or um, even things that seem relatively mundane, like getting your annual or not your getting your annual flu shot, or engaging with uh, colorectal cancer screening. In order for someone to engage with colorectal cancer screening, like getting a colonoscopy or having sort of stool tests, that requires them to confront the possibility that they might have colorectal cancer, and so there can be a certain amount of avoidance in there. So even if they might sort of rationally say. I am better off in terms of my mortality risk and in terms of my survival of engaging with, you know, appropriate age appropriate cancer screening. It might be a really scary thing to do to actually say, okay, I'm going to schedule and do my colonoscopy. And there are a lot of sort of structural things about life that make it hard to fit that into your schedule. And so if you can use nudging to kind of overcome a component of that, to overcome sort of that sort of coping mechanism, either with sort of confronting this possible risk of cancer or just kind of finding the space to fit it into life, then in some ways, you know, nudging helps sort of with that coping process by um, sort of automating a bit of it. I think also in the setting of acute illness or critical illness. And I I work in pediatrics. So for me, it's more family decision makers making decisions for their children. Um, There's a lot of decisional fatigue. um, And there's been research showing that um, families, parents, caretakers have um, post-traumatic stress symptoms and post-traumatic stress disorder after having to make so many high stakes decisions. And so nudging can really alleviate some of that stress on the family and sort of help guide them to the decision that's in line with their their values and what they would most likely be choosing for themselves. How would you distinguish nudging from paternalism? I I think that one way that I like to think about it is that I think that nudging can be an example of soft paternalism. So 
soft paternalism is is kind of where you know the 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 paternalist aims to help the patient to make a quote unquote better decision but it's not it's not because they think that the patient is just making a really bad decision they disagree with it's because they think that the patient is making a decision that's not truly autonomous and that is um, potentially harmful to them. So this goes back to the the work by the philosopher John Stuart Mill, who talks about this famous example where, you know, if somebody's about to cross a bridge that you know is broken, um, and you kind of intervene and you stop them from crossing the bridge, it's a form of paternalism. You're stopping them from doing something that they want to do, but. The important thing is that they were about to do something that wasn't truly informed and truly voluntary because they didn't know the bridge was broken. So it's merely an instance of soft paternalism. You're actually trying to prevent somebody from doing something that's not autonomous that's potentially harmful to them. And soft paternalism is, is by many people, considered to be justified. And that's in contrast to uh, what's sometimes called hard paternalism, where you just, even though somebody's totally informed, you just disagree with their choice, right? So somebody decides to, you know, smoke, uh, and they're totally informed, let's say it's voluntary, although that's debatable, and you stop them from smoking. That would be an example of, of hard paternalism. Elisa, do you find that when you're working with patients or parents making decisions for patients, that this framework of nudging helps? I think in the pediatric ICU, it's really hard. You know, one of the biggest decisions that's made um, in my field is tracheostomy. We have a lot of um, neurodevastated patients, whether it's from a traumatic injury or something they were born with. Um, and there's a lot of times where the family is at the point where they're making that decision. Um, and I think every ICU provider has different feelings about how much tracheostomy should be done or not done. Um and, you know, as I said earlier, I think that we are all nudging. I think that we're all framing things in certain ways as we're presenting information to the families. Um, and I think through my studying of nudging, I have been able to have those conversations um, in a little bit more of a directed way with a goal in mind. Um, and whether or not that's ethically permissible is really the question. What are you hearing from your own medical colleagues about the connections between wanting to make sure a patient is fully informed, nudging in a particular direction, because you feel that the patient is not necessarily making their best choice in a particular instance? I think a lot of clinicians are concerned about the use of nudges because they feel like you are manipulating the patient or the decision maker. And I think many times fail to see that we are, as clinicians and health systems, choice architects all the time and generally don't give a lot of thought to how that choice architecture is going to move the decision makers in various ways as they move through that sort of, you know, theoretical space of decision making. So to build off of Jenny's bridge example, a nudge might be that there are, or, or an example of sort of a nudge-free maybe environment is that there is sort of a road that leads to two paths, one of which leads to a broken bridge that if they try to go across, they may fall into the river. And the other goes to uh, sort of the newer bridge or an alternative way around. And those roads might look identical. And someone basically just has to decide sort of which road they're going to go down. 
a nudge might mean that the road to the broken bridge is sort of gravel with potholes. It's sort of harder to get there, but it's freely available to them still if they choose to go down that road. Whereas the other one is sort of an asphalt road with well-lit road signs and sort of more easily navigated. And so part of the importance of nudging is to say that both I'm going to keep options freely available to people, which is one of the distinctions of sort of historical medical paternalism, where many times the options were not freely available to people or the information was intentionally withheld from people, making it hard for people to make sort of autonomous choices, as opposed to now where we say, you're free to make autonomous choices, but we're going to ease the way to the choice that we think the majority of the population in this situation is sort of better served by this, you know, option A, as opposed to sort of the gravel road. Clinicians often fail to see that in many cases, we've built different quality roads to different choices without giving any intentional thought to which is easier for people to decide which is the better option for people to take, given a set of circumstances. And so what nudging really does in healthcare is say, well, let's at least pay attention to how we're building these various roads to these various options and try to at least make the roads that are sort of best well-marked and sort of uh, best constructed, the ones that we think are best for most decision makers, but still keep the other options open and available to people. I think that's a really great analogy. And I think um, to build on it a little bit and, and, and tie it to this question of sort of how clinicians think about it, I remember this this quote that stood out to me when I interviewed clinicians, actually pediatric intensivists, about their approach to informed consent for tracheostomy, in these cases of children with devastating neurological injuries. And one of the themes that I saw was that I think clinicians that were more experienced were more comfortable with the idea of nudging, I think maybe in part because they realized it was inevitable to some extent. And um, I remember one of the clinicians said, you know, one thing I regret is when, I, you know, earlier in my career, um, I really tried to avoid any influencing choice. And she sort of said, under the guise of neutrality, I let families walk off cliffs was the phrase that she used. And so I think this idea of Joanna's example is so great is kind of you you are the constructor, right? You're the constructor of these two roads and you could try to sit there and be neutral. But if it really is impossible and you kind of do have to steer, you know, you have to construct which road looks a little better or whatever, you, you can spend all your time trying to be neutral and then just, you know, throw your hands back and say, oh, I'm neutral. But the reality is you are influencing their choices. And so whether you let them walk off a cliff or walk off a bridge or whatever the, the metaphor is, um, I think that it's it's a really powerful way to think about it. We did a study a few years ago of residents who were in their last year of residency, uh, just under 100 of them. And we had them take a test that essentially showed how familiar they were with how nudges would influence decision makers. And they did okay on some of them, and they did pretty poorly on predicting the influence of other nudges. And in the interviews that we did with some of the residents afterwards to try to get a sense of where they learned about this and you know how they came up with their answers to these test questions, some of the residents actually started off by saying, 
you know, oh, my job as a clinician is to remain neutral, is to, you know, not influence. And then by the end of the interview, they'd sort of convince themselves that that is a really untenable position to be as a clinician. And that, you know, part of their job as a clinician is to help people make decisions. And in modern, the way that we've conceived of sort of modern shared decision making is that there are two people and the decision can't really be made without the input of those two people. And one of them is the clinician. The other is the patient or the patient's decision maker who knows a lot about those particular values and preferences and goals and things that are important to that person about life. But they can't make a decision in a vacuum. That clinician has to provide input. And figuring out how we can provide input in the most supportive way is one of the reasons why sort of in the conversational way, nudges are really important because we do that, we do it anyway as a clinician. It's it's truly impossible to have sort of a, a completely neutral choice environment. And so thinking about this in a thoughtful way uh, is where, you know, a, a lot of us have started to focus our work. Nudging seems to be offering a response to medical paternalism of the past, which didn't quite work, to clinician neutrality, which did not quite fit either. Would you say that is accurate? I think that's exactly right. And I think with the knowledge of the the set of tools that behavioral science, behavioral economics, and decision psychology are giving us, I think that often medicine and in philosophy and medical ethics just have not been familiar with those. So we could talk about the in-between space sort of abstractly, right? We could say things like manipulation was kind of the, I would say, bad catch-all concept that we had for all of the in-between. Um, but I think that what what's exciting to me and I think what is challenging is just that we there are a lot of concrete examples and tools that we have from those other fields to think about and bring into this space. And um, there is a lot to think about. But I think that's exactly the way to describe it is sort of trying to work out the, the, the ethics and empirics of the in-between space between complete neutrality and, and old school paternalism or coercion. We've been talking a lot about nudging coming from a clinician or a physician to a patient. Does it happen the other way around as well? Does nudging occur from patients to a clinical team or to a healthcare professional? I think that's a really interesting question. It actually came up um, during some of my um, research talks during fellowship. And, and one of the other questions that people were asking is, do clinicians nudge other clinicians? Does the ICU doctor nudge the infectious disease doctor about what decision we should be making? or vice versa. Um, and I, I think it probably happens more between providers, um, but probably is also happening with um, patients and families as well. Does nudging play a part in the process of shared decision-making by thinking very intentionally about it? Behavioral economics and nudging and, and this sort of behavioral science is relatively new to healthcare. And what that means is that it's not something that clinicians are typically educated on. It's not something that is built into our medical school education or a graduate medical education. And therefore, until it becomes, uh, you know, we're, we're increasingly focused in medical education on communication skills and on decision making skills. Um, but this has yet to become sort of an actionable tool in the arsenal of clinicians. Um, Yet 
they're using it anyway. And so it's that understanding that can become really problematic if clinicians lack the understanding of how to use nudges or what the likely influence of their nudges are, but continue to use them, then decision makers are being led into choice environments that nobody really understands uh, what the implications of those might be. How do you demonstrate the differences between appropriate nudging versus bias? This seems complex and not easy to identify. So I'm thinking of work by uh, some colleagues. I think this was uh, Peter Ubel and other colleagues where they looked at how physicians discussed prostate cancer decision-making with patients. And they found that many clinicians didn't take any time to discuss what was important to the patient uh, in terms of risk of impotence, incontinence, things like that, before they offered nudges or offered recommendations to one kind of treatment or the other. And I think that that kind of preference diagnosing or just understanding what's important to the patient is an, is an essential part of good nudging. So if you're not doing that, that's problematic. I think if you're using nudges to go against uh, a preference that you already know the patient has and has a well-founded preference, that's problematic. So for example, if imagine you have a patient who's refusing a blood transfusion because they're a Jehovah's Witness versus a patient who's refusing a blood transfusion due to an availability bias, like their, their cousin had a blood transfusion and died. So I would say it's appropriate to nudge the patient towards the transfusion in the latter example, but not the former example, because that decision in the former example is because of the patient's religious beliefs. So to nudge against that would be problematic and unethical. And then a, a third kind of thing that pops into my mind when thinking about, you know, some markers to think about appropriateness and inappropriateness is this idea of nudging gone too far. Um, it's a little bit related to nudging gone too far, but I think it's just understanding what the patient's reaction to the nudging will be. So years ago, Texas Children's Hospital ran uh, a campaign and a vaccination campaign to try to nudge parents to vaccinate their children. And they created a series of videos that were kind of showing the harms of non-vaccination. So patients who had, you know, like talking to parents who had a child who died and, you know, these kinds of things. And they were very, very vivid videos. And what they found is that for many of the patients that they showed these to, it sort of backfired. And they the, the, par the parents felt kind of too manipulated, right? Like that it, it was going too far. So I think understanding how a patient will react to a particular nudge too, and whether it's going to harm the physician-patient relationship is another thing to think about when we're just trying to kind of sort through, is this a good nudge or a bad nudge? What are the most common examples of a nudge that you have used in your clinical practice? I love this question. Um, Joanna and I did very similar um, studies, hers in the adult population and mine in pediatrics, looking at care conferences, which is in the ICU, a place where we really have more meaningful conversations with family on a deeper level than we can do on rounds. And looking at instances of nudging, um, mine was broken down um, by uh, decision decisions being made and then um, the types of nudges being made and which types of providers were using those nudges. Um, interestingly, in my study, which was at a, a different institution from where I trained, um, the pediatric intensivists used gain frame the most frequently. So looking at the the ways that patients could benefit from treatment therapies. Um, I find myself using framing um, the most frequently, I think. And I think it's funny that you keep using the word frame when talking about how to describe these, um, these ideas. But 
Um, you know, I think it's something that just happens without even realizing it in conversation where you're talking, you know, as uh, Jenny said at the beginning, per- percent chance of survival versus percent chance of dying from a certain procedure. I think it just happens without us realizing it. Um, and just a, an example of a different field that we studied um the palliative care teams used um, social norming by and away the most frequently. So that's really when you're saying, well, many loving families in this situation would choose to go forward with a tracheostomy, but many other loving families would choose to withdraw care, um, just sort of making the family feel like whatever decision it is that they are making is okay, is something that other people have done and sort of normalizing it for them, because these are things that people never think they're going to have to think about. um, And it can be really hard. I think social norming is probably one that comes up quite a bit and might be very easily understood by listeners. So as an example, yesterday in my outpatient clinic, we were trying to decide whether or not someone I was seeing should have lung cancer screening. And so we used a decision support tool to calculate his six-year risk of having lung cancer diagnosed. And he still wasn't sure if he wanted to have lung cancer screening or not. I was trying to stay very centered around him and not sort of what I recommended because it was very based on sort of his values and preferences and for his sort of life and medical care. And I had to really hold back um, and not say most people in your position would do X, Y, and Z. Uh, Because I have that information based on my sort of clinical anecdotal experiences that most people would probably elect for lung cancer screening given that risk of lung cancer. But I knew, I stopped myself and I didn't say it because I knew if I said most people like you would choose to have the lung cancer screen, that that would be a very strong nudge for him to do that. And so I intentionally didn't do it because I wanted him to, you know, I wanted us to use other reasons. Um, so I think that's a really good example because sort of peer pressure, even as adults making complex medical decisions, is still really influential. Another example that I heard recently um, presented by Allison Buttenheim here at Penn is an example of sort of message framing around influenza vaccine. So if you tell people, if you send people a text message or sort of, you know, these secure messages that come from health systems saying, oh, you can call this number to schedule your flu vaccine, that's actually less useful than a message that says, we've reserved a flu vaccine for you, call this number to schedule. And so even just adding in that message framing of sort of this idea that it's Um, reserved just for me is a form of a nudge in that message that can increase uptake of flu vaccine. Appreciation to our guests today for their advice and reflections. As always, appreciation to our listeners as well. Thanks, everyone. My name is Kevin Murphy, and this is Ethics Lab. We hope you have enjoyed this edition of the Ethics Lab podcast, exploring the path from better knowledge to practical results in healthcare ethics. Ethics Lab was created by Kevin Murphy and Russell Keithline. Thanks for listening. Join us again.